week's Texas Tribune TripCast, we're talking about why the top three Republicans in Texas just got behind raising the state sales tax, why national Democrats are pouring so much money into Texas ahead of 2020, and which Texas senator you should be keeping a close eye on as the session enters its final weeks. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's TripCast sponsors. First up, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, who today announced it is partnering with Sanitas USA to open 10 advanced primary care medical centers in Dallas and Houston. And the Advanced Power Alliance, which is the voice of clean energy innovation and investment. From renewables to energy storage, APA is working to deliver power that is cleaner, cheaper, and made in Texas. And one more thing before we begin. TripCast superfans, we want to hear from you. Uh, want to hear yourself in an upcoming episode? Grab your phone, open your voice memo app, and record yourself telling the world why you support the Texas Tribune. Keep your reporting to less than a minute. I'm sorry, keep your recording to less than a minute if you can, and then email your voice note to membership at texastribune.org. Do I have to Hello, this is Aman Pathija here on Wednesday, April 10th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. We have super fans? Is this a new thing? <laughs> All three of them. I guess, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> reporter Shannon Najwabadi. Thanks for having me. And reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. As always, we take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Uh, I had to rewrite this whole script about 20 minutes ago because... Uh, because of super fans? <laughs> uh, yes, three of our biggest fans, the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker, <laughs> put out a statement that we weren't quite expecting. Uh, Ross, can you talk a little bit about what we just learned? Yeah, the big three have said they are behind this idea of raising the sales tax by one penny from six and a quarter percent to seven and a quarter percent and using the money for property tax relief. This has been in a bill... Uh, that's got some motion, although it's stalled <clears throat> stalled at this at this second by Dan Huberty, uh, HJR three. There's another bill kind of like it, uh, joint resolution in the Senate carried by Larry Taylor, and I don't remember the number on that. But the basic idea is you would pass this with a two thirds of the House, two thirds of the Senate, send it to voters, and voters would have the option of raising sales taxes and swapping that for a cut in property taxes. This feels politically strange <laughs> just well it's a it's a bribe i mean you know we're at, we're at the moment you know <laughs> to put it to put we're it using gently the viewer. it's a bribe all right well i mean the the house tomorrow is going to vote on hb2 which is the limits on property taxes as it's written right now local governments would have to seek voter approval if they wanted to raise their property tax revenue by two and a half percent or more and that's in the works and they're trying to squeeze members for votes in the meantime, a similar piece of legislation in the Senate has been stuck. I think it passed out a committee on Valentine's Day. I looked this up the other day, right? So passed out a committee on Valentine's Day and has been pending in the Senate because they don't have the votes to bring it to the floor. You have to have 19. They do not. And there's some question of whether once they got it to the floor, if they could, whether they have the 16 they need to pass it. So I, I think this, this uh, support for a property tax relief bill that would cut property taxes is an attempt from the big three to put a sweetener in the water before tomorrow's vote in the house i'm just like i feel like most democrats are probably going to be against this raising the sales tax it's a regressive tax i mean it's just a straight up it's not a political argument so much as an economic one it's a straight up regressive tax and property taxes you know accrue to the benefit of property owners and that doesn't tend to be the poor you know business likes it because they pay most of the property tax 
business likes it because they pay most of the sales tax. So they get a, a reasonable swap that doesn't, you know, that has more to do with how they do business than with what they own. And homeowners get a deal, renters don't get a deal. It's a, you know, so you have a regressive tax in the sales tax and a, a progress a, a tax that doesn't benefit those people in the property tax. It, it just doesn't seem like Democrats mostly are probably going to be against it. It doesn't seem clear that all Republicans are going to be thinking this is a good thing. No. I mean, <laughs> do they want to raise taxes? That's the question. Yeah. I think there's some definitely some questions about um, whether kind of the hardline conservatives will be behind this. Looking just at the House, you know, you need 100 votes to pass it. That's already 17 Democrats that you need in a statement from the state party. We're seeing already like less than an hour after this is rolled out that they're vowing to fight, quote, tooth and nail against this. So going to be hard to get those 17 votes. And that's, again, if you have all of your 83 Republicans on board. So challenges ahead, I think it's fair to say. And in the Senate, too, you would need at least a couple of Democrats. Two Democrats if they keep all 19 Republicans, which, again, I think, you know, is a question we don't have the answer to at this moment. Worth noting that um, while this this sort of sales tax, property tax swap proposal has been floated in the House before and kind of suggested as this this is going to be the House's property tax relief plan, we haven't heard as much about it in the Senate. And I think the governor has been kind of a question mark. We haven't heard him talk directly about this. So the statement uh, this morning from the big three kind of suggests, OK, this is the consensus. You know, now everyone is behind this, which is something we didn't know before. And the House sponsor, Dan Huberty, is already fooling around with how they use the money. So the original proposal is you raise the sales tax a penny and you use all of the money for property tax relief. They were talking as recently as, you know, within the last 24 hours about changing that so that at least 20% of the money would go into school, into public school spending, and only 80% would be property tax relief. So they're already trying to find a balance to bring some Democrats over to the bill. And in th- so the the sales tax idea is not what the House is debating tomorrow, but it feels like it's going to be kind of an undercurrent in tomorrow's debate. Right. Well, tomorrow what's happening is HB2, which is the lower chamber's priority property tax reform bill, is coming to the floor. All of the pre-filed amendments were due today. There's about 180 amendments that have all been— 180. 180 amendments oh, wow. pre-filed. More than one per member. <laughs> it's a light lifting, right? <laughs> should be should be fun. Um, something that's interesting is that so HB2 passed out of committee in the dead of night um, in March. Since then, between then and now, the bill's gotten like more than 60 more co-authors. And I think 66 were added on April 4th alone, including I think the entire House Freedom Caucus, one Democrat, um, Representative Canales. There was another Democrat who has shown support for the measure in the past, which is... Vice Chair Guillen, who voted for it when it passed out of committee. Um, so that's what we're looking at in HB2 going into the debate tomorrow on the floor. And so uh, you mentioned there are a couple of Democrats who've signed on uh, to the bill, but is it fair to say most Democrats are kind of uncomfortable with the bill? Um, I think that's definitely fair. I think, <laughs> just to be clear, only one Democrat has like actually a co-author. Guillen voted for the Democratic amendments that were very quickly shot down in committee, um, but he did vote aye on the substitute bill to get it to the floor. And so what are Democrats' concerns about the bill? I think that you can see them kind of reflected in some of the amendments that were filed. Um, I think they have many of the same concerns that the cities and counties have voiced in committee, which is that it's too punitive to local leaders. It could cut into um, essential services without uh, really making a big dent in the bill's homeowners pay. So um, 
like I think Chris Turner, chair of the Democratic Caucus in the House, has filed a bill that it looks like, or an amendment that looks like it would just change 2.5 to be 5.5, you know, far <laughs> less punitive from right. their view. Um, Minimal change. Something I yeah. thought was interesting in the, yeah, just a small one. Right, very when short, he introduces it, a technical short, amendment that simply changes yeah. 2.5. Just cleaning up the language. <laughs> right. um, one of some of the amendments I thought were interesting uh, were that in committee, uh, Eddie Rodriguez and Trey Martinez-Fisher, who are both on the Ways and Means Committee, they had both introduced a couple of amendments, like I mentioned, really quickly shot down that would have added more, I, I guess it would have cushioned um, cities and counties a little bit by exempting parts of their the services they provide from the 2.5% cap, so like shared services, mm -hmm. things that they do with the state, um, like you know border security, some tech dot related functions. And I saw that when I was flipping through the amendments really quickly, because they were just quite recently posted online. It looks like Representative Guerin, a Republican, has filed some amendments that are very similar to those ones that appear to have been shot down in committee oh. and authored by Democrats. So um, I think that those are some of the things you might see Democrats voice on the floor tomorrow, which is like, if we're going to have this lower threshold to trigger an election at 2.5, what else can we carve out to help the cities and counties and other taxing units? And um, as Chris Turner perhaps is indicating with his amendment, if we can't do that, can we raise the threshold to be higher? It's, it's fascinating. It feels like this whole session, this debate about property taxes and school finance have kind of fractured the parties and what, you know, it hasn't been just clear Republicans on one side, Democrats right. on the it's other. It's not a clean party fight. But it feels like this sales tax idea is now just going to like amplify that even more. Well, you know, the question is, you know, if you add it, you know, and I think they added it probably to try to be a sweetener and probably so that Republicans on the floor of the House could you know, would have the argument of, you know, right now we're doing property tax reform and then we're going to do property tax relief. So you will get a tax cut. So the idea, I think, is that they get some cover. But I don't think the sweetener, you know, the sweetener may be a poisoner. I mean, this this may be negative for votes and may be a thing where they say, well, you know, if you don't have 100 votes for this constitutional amendment in the House, why am I voting for this HB2? Um, I, I think it's a problem. And then you've got the problem with people who are listening to officials back home and saying, you know, I might or might not be for this, or I don't even care about it, but my mayor does and my county judge does. Charlie Guerin, you know, has got to talk to Glenn Whitley and Betsy Price when he gets home, and both of them are against it. I, I, this is a hard vote. Well, and just back in, I think it was 2006, Rick Perry signed a bill for property tax relief, and he, every all of the Republicans campaigned on it that, you know, we're going to, this is, you're going to feel the relief. And then Homeowners didn't feel the relief. They lowered the property tax, the school property tax, from a dollar fifty to a dollar, and you know that's huge. I mean, they lowered it, you know, by a third, and the thing got gobbled up in property appraisal increases. In you know, the schools went on a little bit of a building spree. You know, the state was growing like a weed that it disappeared, vaporized. You have to feel like for Republicans, especially, they're going to have to be thinking. Whatever property tax relief we're going to be providing this time, are voters even going to notice it, or are they going to? Because they're much more likely to notice sales tax going up on everything they buy. Well, so this is, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a friend of mine in the lobby calls this the Stan Schleter rule. Stan Schleter is a former Ways and Means chairman in the House. He's now a lobbyist, and he was the guy doing tax bills back in the '80s and '90s. And and his thing was, you know, are you going to get as much credit for the tax that you're lowering as you get blamed for the tax that you raise? And that's that's tough. If you raise the sales tax, you know a penny here and people remember that and don't see the property tax increase, you're on the hook. I can add one thing about this concern or this angst over whether homeowners are going to feel any kind of property tax 
or relief on their property tax bills, which is that it looks like several members of the House Freedom Caucus have filed amendments that would reinsert school districts into HB2. Oh. That's been kind of a point of contention um, in previous weeks, which is that uh, right after they put, rolled out this committee substitute that took out school district language, um, some of the House leaders said that, you know, it's addressed in HB3, which is their kind of companion school finance bill that compresses tax rates by four cents. Um, so some of these Freedom Caucus members, you know, like Representative Matt Schaefer, um, several others have filed amendments that look like they would kind of reinsert the school districts back in, perhaps using language similar to a bill Betancourt has filed in the Senate that, you know, ties their ability to grow their revenue to 2.5% figure. All this to say, just from a political perspective, if you're looking at, you know, House Speaker Dennis Bonin in his first term here, he's had two major votes so far. One was the budget, which passed unanimously last month. One was the school finance bill, um, kind of a consensus priority for the lower chamber, which passed nearly unanimously. 148 um, to Stickland. <laughs> 148 to Stickland. And, and I think it's fair to say tomorrow, you know, if he's looking to go three for three, this is poised to be the most difficult challenge on the on the these kind of consensus issues that he's had so far. I think he acknowledged in a radio interview earlier this week, you know, he's probably not anticipating a, a unanimous vote or even a 149 to Stickland. I, I don't see any way you get a unanimous vote on this. That'd be, that'd be astonishing. Well, and I right. just a little more piece of history. 2015, Dennis Bonin was the guy in the house in charge of basically taxes uh, and like the... He was the Ways and Means Chairman. Well, he was the Ways and Means Chairman, but he was also the guy in charge of responding to the Senate's plan for property tax relief. And his plan, which he got the entire House pretty much behind him, was let's cut the state sales tax instead. And he just gave these passionate speeches that genuinely won over some members that were skeptical at first that if you cut the state sales tax, it will boost our economy better and it will people will feel it more and businesses will feel it more than if we do anything with property taxes. And now he's the guy trying to convince the chamber, let's raise the sales tax to cut property taxes. Right, and of course, two years ago, he Who wrote was. That story? <laughs> <laughs> he was the guy leading the House charge on this, uh, you know, lowering the election trigger from eight percent, which is what it is now, to six percent. This year, of course, the priority consensus number that came from the governor is much lower; it's two point five percent. So, I think that you know, questions about how Dennis Bonin has shifted. Obviously, the House is under new leadership. You know, he's no longer reporting to Joe Strauss, but now he's leading the chamber himself. And uh, we got a few questions from. Um uh, social media, Patrick asks, any word on raising the gas tax? Is it Patrick's feet? <laughs> that does not sound like a Patrick's feet question. <laughs> Is it Dan Patrick? <laughs> uh, There's I, a proposal from Drew Springer that would have put a sales tax on gasoline on top of the gas tax. Wow. And it was a bill introduced at the very beginning of the session. <clears throat> it hasn't really gone anywhere. The idea in that bill mainly was to take current sales tax exemptions out. Don't change the rate, but in the exemption on over-counter drugs, in the exemption on gasoline, and, you know, through the bill. Um, but it got filed, it got written about a little bit, and that's the last we heard of it. I mean, I feel like at this point, there's it's very little chance of anything like that moving since we're not hearing anything about it. Yeah, we have six and a half weeks left in the session. Um, and, you know, new proposals have got to be pretty simple or pretty urgent to, to get going at this point, I think. And... Eric asks a question. So who gets the extra money from the sales tax increase? Will this get passed on to the local entities that are taking the hit with the property tax cap? Like $5.1 billion? Yeah, right? $5.1, $5.2 billion at current sales rates. That's how much will be raised. Current taxable sales rates, yeah. So, and that's you know, probably about $0.20 cents 
on property taxes. As the bill's written, it would all go to property taxes. There's a, you know, when you have a, a constitutional amendment, you have another bill that's attached to it called the enabler, and that tells you where the money goes. And in this case, it would go to property taxes. But like we said, they're talking about maybe some of the money should go to public education instead of to property taxes. The property tax money would basically be the state increases its share of public education spending enough for the locals to lower their property taxes. You know, and you just reminded me, so if this even passes the session and Abbott signs it, it has to go to voters. Voters have to... It doesn't go to Abbott. I'm sorry, it doesn't go to Abbott. You're right. right. Constitutional amendments go past the governor. Right. So it'll go to vote. If both chambers pass it, it goes to voters who have to approve raising their own state sales tax for right. a property tax relief. And I know every, you know, we hear so much that voters really are focused on property taxes and how high they are, but... I really wonder if they if it's a slam dunk that they would approve raising the state sales tax. I don't think so. We had a poll question in the latest University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll. It was slightly different. It said, would you support raising this tax or that tax in order to increase public education spending? So it wasn't a tax swap like this, but it was, you know, what about a sales tax to increase public education spending? And 74% said, nope. <laughs> so if you, you know, actually only 71% said no to an income tax. So that tells you kind of where we're ranking in this thing. Uh, a lot of them like the idea of legalizing marijuana and taxing it. We'll leave those uh, super fans alone for a minute. And, um, but, you know, that's a real question. If you went to voters, do they hate property taxes enough to say, yes, I would support raising the nation's ninth highest sales tax? I mean, I do. I mean, how many renters out there who maybe don't vote regularly we'll see, you know, you're going to raise my sales taxes and I'm not going to see any of the relief. Suddenly right. we'll be compelled to vote. You don't, you don't think the landlords, landlords are going to pass it down? <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. I <laughs> uh, wanted to slift, shift topics slightly. Uh, we're going to stay on taxes, but focus on just one person, Paul Bettencourt. He's the Texas senator from Houston who's become the point person on property tax proposals in the Senate. Emma, you had an illuminating profile on Paul Bettencourt recently. Tell us what you learned about him. Yeah, so Paul Bettencourt, the tax man, um, sort of a, a longtime Houston Republican. He was the Harris County tax assessor collector for about 10 years, um, and that started in 1998. That's sort of when he became the tax man. Uh, cue that, that Beatles song, if you guys know that. Um, and after Dan Patrick, who's kind of a, a close friend and ally of his, decided to leave his state Senate seat and run for lieutenant governor, he called Paul and said, hey, would you be interested in running for the legislature? Turned out he was. And so he ended up taking Dan Patrick's seat once Dan Patrick was elected lieutenant governor. And since then, the two of them have kind of ascended from being these property tax activists, you know, in the early 2000s, coming to Capitol committee hearings, fighting to be heard. Now they're leading the upper chamber's efforts on those. So the story was kind of a question of, you know, taxes are this man's life. Can he get it done this session? And I think that's an open question with six and a half weeks left. Right. One thing I've always found fascinating about him is um, he has a weekly radio show. He does. He, he hosts a weekly radio show on Dan Patrick's um, network. It's, on the Lieutenant Governor's radio and, station. And he's an yes. advertiser on said network, too. Yes, for his property tax consultancy business. Nice. And, so, and what is the name of that show again? It is The Three Amigos. <laughs> Uh, so the, the tax man is one of those amigos, and it's it's Friday afternoons from 4 to 6 p.m. If any uh, Tribcast superfans want to tune in. I haven't listened much to this session, but I do remember in the past sessions, I've occasionally listened to the show during session, and you you kind of get a sense of like what he and Dan Patrick are thinking at the moment mm -hmm. about how things are going and about the house from just him talking on his radio show. <laughs> 
He does kind of talk about what's going on at the legislature. A few weeks ago, he was talking about kind of his whip count on Senate Bill 2, which is this property tax proposal that's yet to uh, come to the floor, kind of as as Ross alluded to, because, uh, you know, as many of us are speculating, it doesn't have the votes to come to the floor. And he was kind of talking about, oh, you know, I think we've got about 18 votes. I asked him about that later. He walked it back a little bit. It's not clear whether they have 18 votes. But yeah, I mean, these issues certainly come up on this uh, talk radio show. So podcast listeners, if you're looking for another suggested listen, <laughs> Friday afternoons, uh, the three amigos. Three amigos, <laughs> yeah. Uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TripCast sponsors. First up, independent colleges and universities of Texas. Private colleges, public purpose. Texas's independent colleges and universities are as diverse as the students and communities they serve. Learn more at icut.org. And the Texas Healthcare and Bioscience Summit. It's elevating the impact of Texas's bioscience industry on innovation, our economy, and everyday Texans' lives. Learn more at thbi.com. So, final topic. Um, you know, we've talked a ton on this show about is Texas a swing state? Is it ever going to be a swing state? Right. Uh, one thing you, we've... I've no, always, maybe. <laughs> okay, we're done. One thing that always <laughs> comes up in those discussions is, you know, you'll know where Texas is a swing state when... Like the national when it swings. <laughs> Before that, All right. when the national democratic like kind of apparatus starts investing in the state seriously, and so this week, uh, reporter Abby Livingston scoops that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is going to open an office in Austin with eight staffers ahead of the 2020 cycle. Um, that's a similar strategy that they did in California in 2018, and Democrats ended up flipping seven U.S. House seats in California last year. Uh, Ross, what do you make of this? That the DCCC is putting this much investment in Texas. They have a large number of seats. They think it's six. Um, they think it's at least six. Uh, seats that are held now by Republicans in the 36-member Texas congressional delegation uh, where they think those Republicans could get knocked off. They're looking partly at trends prior to 2018 where you know election results in those districts were getting a little bit tighter. And then looking primarily at 2018 where the votes in some of those districts completely swung. So part of the question in the background of this is, was 2018 an indication of how politics in Texas is going in the future, or was it just that one weird year? Was it driven by Trump's midterm? Was it driven by the Beto O'Rourke Ted Cruz race? You know, was it driven by sunspots? What was that? <laughs> but they're betting right now that based on the 2018 results and some of the trends that they'd seen before that, that Democrats could win six, you know, at least six seats in the congressional delegation, which would be quite an advance. Republicans are looking at the same numbers and saying, yeah, we've got to play defense on these races because those districts were close. But we also have some seats that we think we should have won last time and that we think we can win back. They're looking at the Colin Allred seat that used to belong to Pete Sessions, at the Lizzie Peniel Fletcher seat that used to belong to John Culberson. Everybody in the country looks at the Will Hurd seat because that's the one true swing district in the Texas delegation. There's some others around the state. But you're really betting on whether the 2018 election results were an anomaly, whether they were repeatable, whether Democrats are surging in the state, and what the political environment's going to be like in 2020. It, I know that the, uh, the GCCC is focused on these House seats, but it does make me wonder if they're going to be investing a lot of money in basically these huge population centers, Houston, Dallas, Tarrant County, right. um, and uh, even the border, uh, it, could this actually have a big impact on whether the state turns, you know, whether statewide 
races turn blue next in 2020. You know, the big statewide race next time is, you know, most of the state officials are not on the ballot in, in presidential years. So the big statewide race is going to be the U.S. Senate race. And it remains to be seen who the Democratic nominee is going to be, whether it's going to be somebody named Castro or somebody named Hager or somebody named something else. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at 2018 as a model, you want something in that somebody in that race to drive excitement and turnout behind the presidential race. And, you know, presidential race is going to be the big turnout race, always is. Senate race is big, then the congressional races might benefit. So I, I you know, I think a lot of this is going to depend on who their nominee is for the Senate well, against John Cornyn. And the state party seems to feel like they're not going to have the problem of 2018 where, you know, they ended up with Lupe Valdez as their gubernatorial right. candidate. And, you know, that was kind of not like a top tier on top of their list uh, heading into that cycle. Uh, but they seem to be more confident they're going to get someone they're pleased with this time because they've launched a war room that they say is they're putting a multi-million dollar effort to define John Cornyn before he can define himself. It only works really. I mean, it, it, that helps, but it really you really have to have somebody to beat somebody. You, have, you know, they've got to have a candidate. And right now they don't have a candidate. They've got some prospects. They had some prospects for governor before the, 2016, before the 2018 elections. Um, you know, we'll see what they produce. And if they produce a real competitive candidate, whether that person defeats John Cornyn or just comes close, that rain will come down on, on congressional races. And, that, you know, that's the way to get them across the line. One thing I found interesting is, um, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but a few days ago, an AP reporter uh, was with Beto work on the campaign trail and asked him if, you know, your presidential campaign fizzles out early enough, would you consider running against Cornyn? And Beto O'Rourke didn't rule it out. He just said, I'm focused on this race. I'm not going to get distracted. If his presidential race fizzles out, he's not the candidate he was in 2018. <laughs> I mean, he's just not as attractive a candidate. I, know, I was just surprised that yeah. he did not say, I'm absolutely not running against Cornyn. I'm running for president. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people, you know, were, you know, a lot of us wrote about, you know, what if O'Rourke was on the ballot again in the Senate race and wouldn't that drive this congressional thing, you know, and on down the ballot? And there was a lot of talk about that. And then the when he decided not to do that, the conversation became who else could generate that kind of excitement? Castro's name came up. MJ Hager's name came up. Wendy Davis's name came up for a minute, although she has batted that down and is uh, looking at CD21, I think. Yes, Chip uh, Roy's seat. Chip Roy's seat. Um, so really, we're in the place where we were before the 2018 elections. Who's going to be the top of ballot Democrat, and is that a person who can pull enough votes or generate enough excitement to uh, keep this purple conversation going? Um, How will this affect the number of yard signs in the <laughs> state? <laughs> a critical barometer. Right. <laughs> that, that story about yard signs still is like one of my favorite things we did last year. Yard, yard signs don't vote, right? <laughs> that's technically true. No that's technically that. right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, Independent Colleges and Universities of Texas, and Texas Healthcare and Bioscience Summit, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Emma, Shannon, and our producers Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Amon. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah.